Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two trusty co-hosts, Chris Dorides and Marissa DiNatale. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Hey, hey Mark. It's good to have Marissa back. Is uh, you were AWOL last week? I was. Uh, I was in Pennsylvania. Ah, on business. On uh... no pleasure. Oh. Yeah, That's two crazy. of my uh, very good friends had birthdays last weekend, and it had been. A long time since I've been there. So I flew to Philly for the weekend. Cool. And then I had the most hellacious travel experience coming back to the weather here in Southern California. Oh, yeah. Did you get back? You finally got back. I finally got back. Uh, I waited for my luggage for almost two hours at LAX. My flight was diverted. Oh, yeah, it was bad. I never thought, you know, I thought I'd I always worry about the weather in Philly in February. Right. I never thought I had to worry about the weather in Los Angeles in February. But right. yeah. Well, did the flooding affect you at, at your home or were you okay there? No, I was fine here. It just, uh, mm-hmm. my flight was supposed to come into Orange County. They diverted it to LA because the flight uh-huh. couldn't land in Orange County because of the rain for some reason. And uh-huh. then they lost the luggage that was on the plane and they took, the, they didn't take the luggage off the plane and the plane took off and flew somewhere else with our luggage on it. Oh, <laughs> it was a new one for me. Uh-huh. Sorry about that, but you're, yeah. safe, you're, home, you're home safe and sound. I'm fine. Yeah. Still raining yeah. here, but. Uh, is it still raining? Is, yeah, is it... it is. Wow. So are things turning green in Southern California? Yeah, it's, yes. It looks oh, wow. very nice. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. So is the drought, I, you know, this is now the second winter in a row where you've gotten a boatload of rain. Uh, is it is the drought winding down or I haven't, I haven't kept track? I haven't you know? heard what they've said about the drought situation. Um, yeah. I would just, it has to have. Had some this has to have put a dent in it. I think we got more rain in the last week than we've had in like six years combined or something like that. Good. Something crazy. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's re- wow. Yeah. I mean, it's been raining, pouring every day since last Thursday. So we're going on eight days of oh, constant goodness. rain. Goodness. Yeah. Well, I know in Philly, I'm, I, I'm hearing secondhand from folks because I'm down in Florida, but you guys have been getting... Chris, you've been getting pretty warm weather down in Philly, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty yeah. nice. Yeah. Pretty nice. Yeah. Well, well, good. Well, I'm glad you're safe and sound and glad you're back and on I'm the back. podcast. Uh, you missed a good one last week. I can't remember. I listened to it on the plane. It was a good one. What, what, I can't even remember. It was Jobs Friday. Jobs. Oh, Jobs Dante. Friday. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was very good. Good. Well, this is going to be a good one too. We've got a guest, uh, Bill Adams, a chief economist of Comerica. Bill, good to see you. Mark, thanks for having me on. And you're, are you hailing from Dallas? I'm, uh, well, if you want to be really precise about it, I'm in Frisco, Texas, but close enough. Yep. Frisco is like just north of Dallas or no, is that right? Right. right. Yeah. Frisco, we're about, um, at, at 3 a.m., we're a 25 minute drive north of, north of Dallas and <laughs> um, one of uh, the fastest growing towns in, uh, or cities, I guess we are, or Frisco is in, in the United States right now. Yeah, it's boom times there. Unbelievable. Right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, just amazing kind of growth. Every time I go, it's like the, the whole thing changes. You know, it's just incredible. Yeah. It's it's a very exciting part of the country to be in. Yeah. There's, I, I think of Miami like a, like the like the, Miami's booming too, like the Dubai of the United States. So what, what would be Dallas? What would be the global analog for Dallas, do you think? Um, you know, being in Dallas, so I... Uh, 
Uh, you're, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Like, I know you wanted to do my background later. Um, so I was, I was uh, living in China for a couple of years uh -huh. in, uh, in the 2000s, like right after China joined the WTO. And it feels sort of like being in a major Chinese city in like the old go-go boom times. Uh -huh. um, you know, there's a lot of cranes, a lot of construction. You don't go to a part of town for a year or two and you're like, where am I? Which building <laughs> is this again? So it's, um, and the same feeling of, of optimism and uh, kind of confidence, really um, cosmopolitan, outward-looking town because it's growing so much and people are coming from all over uh, to come here, live here, do business here. Yeah, we get this really, uh, I, th I think I've talked about it before, this really cool data based on credit files. We get all the credit files in the country from Credit Bureau, Equifax, and you can see at, uh, the address changes. And so you can we can track very timely, you know, like I can tell you how many people move from uh, Southern California or even uh, Marissa's neighborhood to Frisco, uh, in, you know, in last month in the month of January. And it just feels like people are, well, actually with the immigrant issue, people are pouring in from everywhere, aren't they? You know, just into, into the- Definitely. Country. Yeah. You, you, you see it um, in, you know, in, the streets in the license plates on cars, um, uh, the the parents and my kids' elementary school and their middle school, they're from all across the United States, all over the world. So um, it's it makes for like uh, fun uh, PT, PTA events where like bring the food from where you're from, you get uh, just an amazing, um, you know, mix of, of backgrounds. Yeah, very cool. And so talking about your background, uh, can you just give us a sense of that? How did you end up as chief economist of Comerica? Uh, and I, we've had I, we've had points of contact over many years. Uh, you were a PNC. But tell us, what's your history? How did you, how'd you get there? So um, I, uh, uh, I, I joined Comerica in 2022. Um, prior to that, I was an economist with PNC for about 10 years. And then prior to that, I started out my uh, economic forecasting career with the conference board, um, working in their, their China center in Beijing. Um, so that's like the, the standard version of it. The economist inside baseball version of it is if you remember the movie Zoolander, and then there's uh -huh. the scene where Mugatu calls in Derek Zoolander. And he's like, I'm, we, we should work together. And Derek's like, well, why are we talking? I've been here. Why, why now? Um, because like, Basically, almost everyone who I've worked with as an economist over the last 20 years came out of Moody's. Um, there's a lot of Moody's uh, <laughs> alumni at PNC, the former chief economist at Comerica also uh, spent time at, yeah, yeah, Robert, yeah, Bob Dye spent time uh, uh, way back when. So um, I'm like, have been the odd man out of not knowing 10,000 Moody's uh, data buffet mnemonics off the top of my head uh, with this <laughs> so crew. Yeah. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun for me to finally, you know, talk with folks at the mothership. Yeah. And that's what I call it. The mothership, definitely the mothership. Well, uh, yeah, I, I forgot about that. Bob, Bob, now Comerica, you guys were headquartered in, in Detroit, weren't you? Now that's way back when. Uh, way back when there was a bank called the Detroit Savings Bank. Um, and that bank uh, merged with uh, banks in uh, in Texas and California, uh, Sterling Bank, Imperial Bank, and um, those 
they came together, became a, a, a regional bank, and that's kind of Comerica's identity today, where we're um, in still have a, a, a very large presence in Michigan, but also a, a big footprint here in Texas, in California, and in Florida, and now in, in the Southeast and Mountain West as well. And what's in terms of asset size, how big is Comerica these days? Uh, I think Q4 2023, we're around 85 billion in assets. 85 billion. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, so kind of just south of that 100 billion threshold when kind of life changes for a bank. That is, that's a, it's a very special time for a, in a bank's life yeah. when they hit a hundred billion dollars. Right. And uh, we're, we're not there yet. Um, we, uh, if you look at our historical financials, um, yeah, we've been kind of close enough to that hundred billion dollar threshold that we get questions about it. Um, our, our inv investor relations teams get questions. Yeah. And just for that. the listener out there, once you hit the hundred billion, then a whole another slew of regulatory constraints, uh, oversight, capital, liquidity, you're in a whole different ball game uh, at that point. Of course, in the other, the, I think the other threshold is, isn't it 250 billion? So it's a hundred billion. You get a, a, an increased level of scrutiny from regulators. Then you get over 250. Then, then they're, you're in the big time. And you're, yeah, they're all, you're, the scrutiny is very intense. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, Okay, good. Uh, well, a lot to talk about, uh, but maybe with just an open-ended question, just to get a sense of where your mind is. Uh, and as I was saying to you prior to going uh, going on the podcast, I'm going to try to find a place where we disagree. I, yeah, I, um, I have I'm I've been talking to a bunch of economists recently, and it feels like now everyone's in the camp of soft landing. Everyone's in agreement. Uh, that the, the 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 argument over recession is largely over. I don't know if it should be or not. I'd be curious what you think. But now we're, everyone's in the camp of uh, okay, the economy's okay, fine. We should be able to avoid recession. But uh, so there's it doesn't feel like economists are disagreeing with each other, which makes me very nervous. So therefore, I'm going to look for a place where we can disagree. But okay, just an open-ended question: How are you feeling about things? What what do you think about the economy's prospects here in the near term? Near term? Uh, so um, I have this sort of split personality view of where we're headed in 2024. Uh, on the one hand, I feel like economic growth this year is probably going to moderate a bit from what we had last year. So if you're looking for direction of momentum, I think probably we'll see um, some softness uh, in, in parts of the economy that did really well. Um, on the other hand, if you're asking about recession risk, I think recession risk in the 12 months ahead are considerably lower than I thought recession risk in the 12 months ahead were at the start of 2023. So a lot of the, the tail risks that I'd been thinking about, um, you know, uh, falling inflation adjusted incomes, uh, energy price shock, interest rate shock, uh, global um, uh, geopolitical threats to the US economy, uh, I, I feel like those are smaller risks now than than they have seemed for a while. So um, on the one hand, I feel like the, the rate of growth that we've seen in, in the data in hand through the end of last year and early this year may be um, a little too good to be sustained. But on the other hand, in, in terms of what I see coming forward, like not, not a recession, and not necessarily a big slowdown, just kind of a moderation closer to our potential growth. 
So just to put a finer point on it, if I if you were on the podcast a year ago and I asked, hey, uh, Bill, what do you think the probability of a recession starting at some point in 2023, what would you have said? Uh, a year ago, I would have said, I think there's a risk that the U.S. economy already is in a recession or has already had a recession at the turn of the year from the end of 2022 into 2023. Got it. Um, and, now, and now going forward for the coming year, what would you say probably? I, I'd say the risk of recession now is like three in 10, which is three pretty, 10. pretty low. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I guess we've been what in recession, like two, one fifth of the time since World War II, give or take. So three in 10 is slightly above historical average, but not high. Yeah, that, I think that's fair. Yeah, since World War II, I think it is like it is it, it more if you go since like 1980, I think it's 1980 is kind of the threshold because uh, the world kind of changed in that period conduct of monetary policy because i was policy. born i was born which is the big change in oh, the, there you in go the in 1980 yeah. no 1981 so like for me yeah uh, yeah yeah but it, uh, yeah um so you, you you saw nothing but falling interest rates uh that's right i did not believe interest rates could rise who knew <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay so here we are oh and, and so i i would put the unconditional probability of recession at say 15%, but 15, 20, what you're saying, I said a bit 30. elevated, yeah. but yeah. you know, just a bit elevated. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. And why, and this is something I'm asking myself because our forecast uh, for growth in 2024 is a bit less than in 2023. So 2023 real GDP grew two and a half percent, I think if memory serves calendar mm -hmm. year. Yeah, and I think we have it coming down to somewhere between two and two and a half percent in 2024. But every time I sit down and do the forecast, I mean, actually sit at the computer, run our model, do all the arithmetic, you have to get some pretty weak growth in the middle of this year, you know, now or sometime at some point in this year to get something less than two and a half percent, right? You have to have quarters where you're well below two. What, what do you, what do you, why, why would that happen? What, what, what's going to be behind that growth slowdown? So if, if we get that growth slowdown and that is kind of my, my base case, um, I guess as well as yours is, uh, you know, two drivers. One would be uh, consumer spending was really strong in 2023. And we saw a run up in uh, credit card balances. We saw a big drop in the household saving rate, um, which, uh, you know, maybe that's just uh, catch up after pandemic era savings, people spending that down. But um, there are a lot of other signs that households were under financial strain over the last two years. Um, and so I, I, I don't think that of, of that is just a normalization. I think there are, especially low and moderate income households, but to an extent reaching into the, uh, some parts of the top half of the income distribution where, where you know, households are under some stress. And um, I, I don't think that rate of spending growth can, uh, is likely to continue. I mean, when you get the turning point is is much harder to call than just like, wow, this fundamental thing seems out of whack. Eventually, you're going to revert to mean. But my, my forecast assumes that that is this year. Um, the, the other part of uh, my expectation for a moderation in growth is that there was a big um, boost to the deficit, the fiscal deficit, federal fiscal deficit from like inflation indexed wonky stuff or like 
social security um, benefits rose a whole lot in 2023 because measured inflation was high at the end of 2022. Inflation slowed through the end of 2023. So we should see uh, smaller increases in federal expenditures on uh, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, a lot of inflation indexed um, defense department contracting is probably gonna see smaller price increases this year too. Uh, and then we're also, I, I think we'll see larger um, uh, non-withheld tax revenues come April because stock market did better last year than in 2022. Bond market was not a bloodbath like in 2022. So I think capital gains receipts will be, will be higher this tax season. Got it. So basically the story is that consumers drove the train pretty quickly in 2023. They're, just, they're, they're going to continue to drive the train in 2024 just at a slower rate. They, for sure. That, I think that's that's uh, that's a fine way of describing it. That's my simplistic way of, of doing it. Well, can I um, do a little bit of a, a, a tangent here and pick up on one of the, start pulling on one of the threads you, uh, you put out there on low-income households? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of hand-wringing and clearly lower income households are under some significant financial pressure, right? They, right. They got nailed hard by the high inflation. Uh, they blew through their excess saving. They built up during the pandemic pretty quickly. They turned to credit cards, consumer finance uh, loans to supplement their income to maintain their purchasing power. Of course, rates have risen. So now they're left with the credit card bills at a higher interest rate and they're paying on that. And we've seen delinquency rates on uh, uh, credit cards and other uh, household credit products, you know, rise. Uh, they're still, you know, not not really high, but they've risen considerably, particularly cards and consumer finance. Subprime auto would be another, you know, place where we've seen some a significant increase. Uh, and there's now a lot of hand wringing about that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and do you have a sense of that? Do you have a view on? Uh, how serious a problem that is and will the credit problems become more of an issue going forward or uh, is it now with the Fed likely cutting rates and we'll come back to that, are we seeing the worst of the credit problems at hand? Um, my expectation um, and, uh, you know, I work for a bank, so got to put in the disclaimer, I'm talking about the economy wide, not Comerica itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So like across the economy, uh, my expectation is that we still have uh, some pain to be realized in um, uh, defaults and credit stress affecting low income households. And, you know, those the credit cycle is is long and slow and it's lagged to the real economic cycle. Um, Access to credit was was really good the last couple of years. Uh, And there was like this just sort of broad sense that. the economy was uh, had a ton of support from fiscal stimulus, and and so there was a big lag between when shocks would hit households and when you would see it show up in delinquency on on credit. So uh, I think um, a combination of higher interest rates, people uh, first running out of stimulus money and then tapping their credit cards and and kind of running out of their uh, capacity to, to keep up on bills with, with that sense. For people who are in the, you know, the most vulnerable fifth of the income distribution, I think we'll continue to see some increase in, uh, in delinquency rates and, and financial stress over the next 12 months. Um, 
But, you know, for an, an economy-wide basis, uh, I, I think you're, you've got a lot of puts and takes on uh, credit performance. Um, the expectation that the Fed is cutting interest rates uh, combined with some interest rates are, are already down from where they were at their peak last year. Uh, and I've, uh, I was at an economic outlook event. Um, uh, it was somewhere here in, in North Texas uh, last week. And um, uh, I was uh, listening to an economist talk about, oh, um, this was uh, the, uh, one of our, our, our researchers at, at the uh, Dallas Fed talking Dallas about Fed. the uh, real estate agents, um, a part of how they're convincing people to go out and buy given where mortgage rates are today is I've, you know, I've got a mortgage agent, they'll get you a mortgage today and they will, um, uh, with your mortgage comes a free refi in two years is what I've heard uh, is kind of the, the sweetener that they're using to pull people oh, into the market. At, so, at, the, at the prevailing rate, presumably, whatever the rate is. That is, that is there's not- There's no fee. To my, no yeah, fee. That I, I, well, it's not a business that uh, we're, we're in, so I don't yeah. know exactly what okay. the terms were for okay. that. But I think this- okay. Like as the uh, idea that interest rates are headed lower now, I think yeah. is a big psychological right. shift, and yeah. and you'll you'll find s smart business people coming up with ways, innovative products that take advantage of their expectations of where rates are headed, and um and you know find ways to do business around that. So I, I think uh, a lot of the the pain in the real economy from high interest rates has, I, I believe, it's likely a majority of that has already been realized. Okay, Chris, uh, what do you think uh, with regard to Bill's perspective on uh, on household credit? Yeah, I, I think I broadly uh, agree that uh, there's probably still some adjustment that's going on. So we do expect to see delinquency rates, default rates continue to to rise here for a bit, but we're most more most likely uh, close to stabilizing at this higher level when it comes to credit cards and uh, personal loans. Part of the reason why we saw this increase is just the lending standards during the pandemic had loosened up either directly or indirectly as people's uh, credit scores improved. Um, so we're just paying the price of some of that loosening. Um, but since then, of course, as the banks have tightened up, certainly uh, over the last year, right, uh, the credit quality of the newer loans should improve dramatically. So for that reason, I think uh, barring a recession, I think uh, the household credit picture looks pretty good. I, don't, I wouldn't be overly concerned about some of the increases we're seeing. You know, Bill, I mentioned the, the uh, Equifax data that we get every month. Uh, and uh, we got uh, one of our colleagues, Justin Begley, sent us this, uh, both Chris and I, uh, workbook last night with the data. And and so it's it's monthly data. So I have data now through the month of January. It, we you know we seasonally adjust the data because there's a lot of seasonality you know in the in the credit statistics uh, in terms of delinquency. And uh, delinquency rates look like they've stabilized even on credit cards. Uh, the uh, I think the 30 day plus delinquency rate and correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's percent of dollars outstanding was four percent. I think on the nose or pretty close yeah. in January. And it really hasn't budged for three, six months. That's uh, right. Consumer finance, same. Retail card, that's a whole different ballgame. But uh, you know, auto, same with auto loans. 
it, you know, it is starting to, it is rising for mortgage first and second mortgage, but that, you know, it's off an incredibly low level. I mean, it's still well below what it was pre-pandemic and there's no sign of any credit stress there. And the other thing I take solace in is if you look at the growth in outstandings, you know, how much debt is actually outstanding, those growth rates have really come down a lot. And over the, you know, year over year, I think total household debt, cars, auto, first mortgage, home equity lines, the whole shoot and match is, is almost come to a standstill. There's very little credit growth, you know, going on. Uh, and it, the card is still high. It's still, I think, in the double digit, but that's coming in really fast as well. So I look at that and I, you know, I, it feels like to me, we're, we've probably seen the worst of it. In fact, you can look at the delinquency rate by vintage of loan origination. And to Chris's point, if you look at the loans that were originated a year ago and their delinquency rate, you know, like a year in to their life cycle, those rates are now coming in below uh, uh, previous vintages at the same point in their life cycle. So lower than the 22 vintage, 21 vintage. So I don't know, Feel it, it feels like uh, we're pretty close. And I bring all of this up because uh, I'm so annoyed and I'm curious if you're as annoyed as I am with the New York Fed data. You do follow the New York Fed data, you know what the New York Fed does on the consumer credit? The quarterly data, right? Yeah, that, yeah. that is, I, I just find that so bogus. I mean, first of all, it's a 5% sample. Okay, you can say, oh, 5% should be big enough for these big aggregate statistics. But I, you know, I'm not so sure because our data, our data, which is the whole shoot and match, doesn't line up with their data, you know, even apples to apples. So it's a sample. Second, mm -hmm. it's very lag. You know, it's, you know, it's already out of date compared to the data that we have. And then Chris explain this weird thing they do with the, the calculated delinquency rates on, on charge offs. Explain what they're doing there. Oh gosh, it's a. Uh, I think we need a whole lot. Of, I'm going to tweet other, about this this weekend. I'm gearing up for it right now. We need another podcast uh, for yeah. it. Um, my understanding, at least what they've explained, is that the um, they leave in uh, loans that have been charged off, right? Uh, they're. I believe the theory is they're taking more of a consumer centric view, right? So if you are a credit card borrower. You uh, default on your loan. Your loan actually gets charged off by the issuing bank, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook. You're still on the hook for the debt. There's going to be some collection agency, presumably, that picks it up and starts to, tries to collect that that uh, debt, and that continues until either until you pay off or it will remain on your credit port report for up to seven years. This uh, derogatory account. So, I think the theory is a if we're if we're looking at this from the viewpoint of the consumer. A debt is a debt, and you're still delinquent even after the issuing bank has, has charged off. That might be fine in, in theory, but it, it doesn't really represent what's going on today and, to my mind, what the consumers are actually reacting to in terms of uh, their their current credit position. Right? If I have this debt that's been charged off five years ago, I haven't paid it. I, I'm pretty clear that I've already made the choice as a consumer not to pay that debt. It's not really affecting my my day to day decisions. I, I don't see that as a very meaningful uh, economic statistic. The other issue is that it doesn't this measure of where we include these charge off doesn't line up with what the actual credit card companies report in their financial reports. So, a bit of a, a difficulty in terms of doing some any type of benchmark comparison, right? And in terms of the different uh, in the different measures. And then finally, there's just there's a, a lot of uh, 
It's called variation in the practice of reporting delinquencies after charge-off, right? Some companies will continue to do so. Others say, well, it's, you know, I have no incentive to continue reporting on this, uh, on this debt. So, you know, I, it's not really important uh, that I ensure the accuracy of this. So you, you end up with a, a measure that, to my mind, is, is very convoluted. It's, it's, it's difficult to understand what exactly is going on when you look at those um, New York Fed statistics. Um, the broad trends maybe are okay. And certainly if you look at some of their transition rates, that might be okay. But even there, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, skeptical given you know, the, the sampling that Mark brought up and just some of the other data treatments that we're, we're talking about here. Hey, Bill, I just want to point out, uh, you saw the way I express my annoyance and the way Chris expresses his annoyance. I'm not even sure he's annoyed. I, I don't know. <laughs> so what, I, I, this so, is unfair, Bill, but what do you think? We brought you into this conversation, this kind of discussion we've been having. Do you have any yeah. news on uh, You know, um, you don't need hard. to. I'm just asking. No, fair. I think it's hard to measure the economy in real time, right? Yeah. Um, and your definition, you'll see really different things depending on your definitions. Um, I, I mean, we could, like, I, when I think of this, I think of, like, the analogy to, um, like, the the recession uh, argument over the last couple of years. Did we have a recession or not? And, um, like, I, uh, I, I got... Uh, by the official me- every official measure, I got the um, recession call wrong in late 2022, early 2023. Delighted to see that the economy did better than than I feared. Um, but if you look at gross domestic income, we did see two yeah. consecutive quarters of decline. And in theory, gross domestic income and and uh, GDP by the expenditures account are measuring the same thing. So it's um, the the uh, an experience that I have, which um, I imagine you probably have had some analogous uh, conversations is when you talk to financial people, like people in a finance department, if they have like one version of their numbers and then they're like, never mind, we're totally restating everything for the last five years. <laughs> we got better data. So this is a better measure of what happened yeah. um, to the thing we're measuring. Like they get in a lot of trouble for that. They don't like doing that. And they don't like working with um, data sources that do that. But uh, as macroeconomists, it's just part of the game. Um, you know, it's like we're we're talking right now. We've we've been on this podcast for I guess about half an hour. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, you folks are on the clock. I'm on the clock. In theory, we're creating GDP right now. How much GDP have we generated in the last half hour? Um, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't know if if this. Am I making a good point? And so my GDP per minute just went up as I started talking, or is was I actually making more GDP when I was silent? Um, I don't know how to measure that. And I don't know if there's a good answer. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. This is what and, I want to do. Or, 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 or to, to like make a, a finer and more actionable point. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to base any business decision or any firm judgment about the economy, about things that happen too far beyond the decimal point. It's just, we're not able to measure the economy to a degree of accuracy that I feel like that's, you know, a, a credible way of, of using our data sources and our, our judgments. Right. Yeah. Although measuring a delinquency rate, you would think we could get that one right. Come on. How do we You think, on? you think, yeah, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> complicated. Yeah. Now you've, you kind of laid out the um, baseline case kind of in the, for the economy, 
relatively sanguine, kind of down the middle of the distribution, no recession, slower growth. In it, you said risk of recession is a little bit elevated, so it feels like the risks to your baseline is a little bit skewed to the downside compared mm-hmm. to the upside. Oh, uh, can I ask, what's the number one threat to your optimism? You know, what if something went off the rails, what would that be? I'd say most. Yeah, likely- I'm going to ask you the same question. Sure. So, uh, oh, oh. Or maybe I'll ask you to comment on Bill's, you know, comment. I think if you're, you know, if you're working in an institution and you're following a process, um, and I, I feel like you got to put foreign shock number one right now. War in the Middle East. Yeah. War in between Russia and Ukraine. Um, ever since the uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, and then the the war deepened. I, I feel like everyone's been sort of saying, what about China and Taiwan? Um, and uh, what's the, what are the potential scenarios there? Um, for, for listeners at home uh, or on their delayed flights who uh, don't subscribe to the Moody's scenario service, uh, Moody's has been incorporating a, a China-Taiwan conflict in the downside scenarios for the last uh, I believe couple of years. Um, so it's uh, as a as a consumer of those, it's helpful to say that we have uh, a, a view of one institution, one institution's view of of how that would affect the broader economy. Um, so that, uh, but that is something that uh, I think you have to keep in mind. You know, the uh, the U.S. economy has been amazingly resilient to these foreign shocks in the last twelve months. Uh, and I think it's largely because we're we're growing energy production so successfully right now at home, um, like uh, oil outputs at a record high, natural gas, liquids, dry gas also at, at record highs, and growing faster than crude oil. But we're also like uh, I think it's like 17% year over year growth of solar electricity generation. Mm. Um, in like I follow the EIA's monthly statistics for that, which come out of a lag, but point to really, you know, big changes underway in, in basic energy supply. And if you think of like the 1970s, early 1980s, oil price shocks are a huge part of why the U.S. had these very volatile, very sudden and deep recessions. A positive supply shock on oil, on energy supply, uh, both uh, conventional and renewable, it seems like it should be good for the economy. And I think that's what's kind of offsetting the effect of, of this geopolitical um, uh, unrest, uncertainty, wars, et cetera. But uh, though, though, you know, we, there's no guarantee that we continue to kind of realize the best possible outcome among those. And I think that's, that's still a downside risk. So geo, you, the, just to uh, put into my nomenclature, you're saying geopolitical risk, and that takes on different dimensions, China, Taiwan, what's going on in the Middle East, maybe North mm-hmm. Korea, that that's the thing that makes you most nervous in, in terms of the economic outlook, near-term economic outlook. Uh, yeah, I think if, you're, okay. if you want to assign, if you want to come up with tail risk scenarios and you're coming up with a downside scenario and you want the most likely downside scenario right now, I feel yeah. like it makes sense to put a, a, a negative foreign shock in part of that. Okay. Okay. What do you think, Marissa? 
Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, agree. That, that's okay. my number one as well. I mean, it's the most obvious thing that's out there. I always worry about something percolating in the financial system that we can't see because that seems to happen and we don't foresee it. So I do worry about that, but certainly something coming from abroad would be my number one. In like, how would that manifest? I mean, give me an ex- uh, just give me give me a scenario that that, that makes you nervous. I mean, the conflict in the Middle East just seems uh-huh. to be it seems to be widening, right? I mean, we're we're doing strikes on Iranian-backed rebels throughout the Middle East in in other countries. It seems, you know, it it seemed very contained to Israel Gaza, then we had the Houthis, now it seems to be broadening. So, if it draws in much more of the Middle East, then you could have a real uh, oil supply shock. Now, oh, is that I, what I think, so that's yeah, the- yeah, that's my it- conduit that I think about. I mean, to Bill's point, we are producing more oil now. Um, we are, I don't know, we're back and forth with Saudi Arabia. So I don't know if we're the biggest now or no, we're second biggest, biggest, right? No, no. So, I mean, I mean no, that's- wait. In terms of production, we're, thir- correct me if I'm wrong, I think we're at 13 million barrels a day. They've been cutting, they're down to like yeah. eight, Seven. Okay. So, I mean, that that has insulated us much more than it would have in the 1980s, certainly. Um, but if something happens with these Middle Eastern countries, I mean, that's still a very large part of our oil supply and our global oil supply. So, so that's, that's gas how you prices are my, yeah, yeah, gas prices. Mm-hmm. Okay. Bill, would you, is that same way you would, would you connect the dots from geopolitical threat back to the economy or is it something uh, else? No, I, I think, yeah, I, th- I think gas prices, I think a uh, shock to financial conditions, stock equity indices fall, you see a negative consumer confidence, negative wealth effect. Uh, and then probably also uh, you could, uh, I would expect a sharp appreciation of the US dollar. So negative effects on US foreign trade kind of manifesting over a couple of quarters. Um, and maybe some shocks to like the uh, oil importing emerging markets that um, where we could see kind of knock on effects flowing back to the U.S. through, through other global channels. Um, the, uh, the U.S. were it's um, very different, right, than it was 15 years ago where we were so exposed to energy price shocks and now we're better insulated. But that's not true of the whole world. And so you could see effects of an energy crisis on global growth that then kind of flow through um, other other trade or um, you know geopolitical shocks that, and then come back and affect us. On Chris, kind what, of do you, what do you think? You, is geopolitical risk at the top of your list of concerns as well? Uh, not at the very top. I, I put okay. the Fed at the top of my list. Oh. That makes some, some type yeah. of... Uh, Mistake, but although you know it's all interrelated, right? Why would the Fed make a mistake? Well, maybe it's because inflation starts to take off again because of a geopolitical threat. Just to add to the mix, because uh, sounds like we're in the you know, risk identification mode here. <laughs> maybe uh, I'd throw in the supply chains. I wouldn't discount issues in terms of uh, trade being disrupted. I hear the Somali pirates are back because now some of the trade is being diverted uh closer to the somali coast so you know they're all maybe they're small um in the grand scheme of things all these different uh trade bottlenecks but put them all together and they they do increase uh 
shipping costs and certainly could lead to some delays in um, delivery of materials and product that could disrupt uh, manufacturing other industries. Yeah. You know, when I hear geopolitical risk, I think, oh, the economy's in pretty good shape because if that, if we're going back to geopolitical risk, that's just amorphous thing. We have, we always have geopolitical risk. There's always something going on somewhere that we have to worry about. I mean, I'm sure I've said this many times before, but when I was a kid in elementary school, I had a, we had uh, drills where there was a nuclear bomb that went off and we had to run under our desk. That's in my mind, that's (laughs) geopolitical risk. Uh, Really? You know, come on. So this makes me feel like we're searching for, for threats, which makes me feel a little bit makes me at first blush. It makes me feel better. Then I say, Oh my gosh, then what, there's something that's going to be out there that we're not thinking about. That's going to come back and hit us. And I do want to bring up one other risk and get your, your uh, view bill. Then we're going to do the game. And then we're going to come mm-hmm. back and talk about China because of your, your experience and expertise in China. And then we'll call it a podcast. This, and and uh, Marissa alluded to it, the financial system. Look, the financial right. system is under a lot of pressure. The yield curve is still inverted. Short rates are higher than long rates. So funding costs are higher than lending rates in in many cases. So that puts pressure on banks and other financial institutions. That's how they make their you know at the most basic way of making money. I borrow mm-hmm. short at a low rate. I lend long at a higher rate. Uh, lo- loan growth is weakening because of the tightening and underwriting. Uh, credit quality is weakening. Uh, I, I made the case household credit were at the worst of it, but CRE commercial real estate that's that's in train. That's so we still got a sense of that this past week with uh, New York City Com- Community Bank uh, choking on their co- commercial real estate loans. That's coming, uh, and of course the regulatory environment is more difficult. I'm not making a comment: is it good or bad? I'm just saying, look, the costs, regulatory costs, are on the rise because of you know what's happened here over the past year. Is that on your list of concerns? You know, something else going off the rails or breaking in the financial system, the banking system. Uh, I, I had a, a, a really great professor uh, when I was in grad school, and I um, I went back uh, and talked with him a couple of years after I graduated. And I was thinking about like tail risks, risk identification, and um, you know how do you uh, how do you think of these shocks? And um, I asked him, you know, like what's the right way to think of a financial shock affecting like sure the economy looks like it's this was like in the early 2010s when the economy was like kind of crappy but not in a recession it was gradually improving from a very very bad state and um the i was like well couldn't we have another financial shock that and then that would push us into recession and he said there's no such thing as a financial shock that just comes from the financial system what you see is you have some stress from the real economy that then is intermediated through the financial system. And then there's a um, you know, vulnerability, a weak leak link in the financial system that then gets exposed because, but it only was exposed because you have that real economic shock. And he was, this was like, uh, you know, over 10 years ago. So the analogies back then were all to um, the, the 2007, 2008 crisis. And he said like, every, the things that went back wrong in the financial system then, um, you know, you saw them in financial institutions, but they were manifestations of housing prices falling and the stress that that caused on the real economy, which then, you know, flows through the financial system. So um, 
I don't know that I'm necessarily a believer in that point of view, but I, it's by the a, way, it's I totally ele- disagree with that. It's an elegant oh, argument. That's a whole different it's, thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think, it, but that's like subprime a, a, mortgage. I'm just saying subprime. Yeah, mortgage. it's. This is yeah. a, a but well, I mean, subprime maybe would have been okay if house prices kept no going. No way, up no possible scenario. I mean, but okay. I, yeah. I'm not, I'm not yeah. betting yeah. my money on it. But yeah. so uh, this is a, a long way of saying I think that if the economy is still in decent shape over the next twelve months, you know, it it would be pretty unusual to see a major financial shock uh, with a healthy real economy. Got it. Okay. Very good. Okay. Let's play the game. Uh, the statistics game. We each uh, put forward a stat. The rest of the group tries to figure that out through cues and uh, clues and deductive reasoning. The best stat is one that's not so easy. We uh, get it immediately. One that's that's not so hard. We never get it. And one that's apropos for the topic mm-hmm. at hand or is recent. And we've covered a lot of ground. So that leaves a lot of ground for the stat. <laughs> and we always begin with Marissa. She leads the way. Marissa, what's your stat? My stat is minus 0.8% year over year in January. A government statistic? Yes. And it's also, I'll give you a hint, it's it's actually a, a happily coincidental statistic in this podcast. Oh, interesting. Whoa. Is it a credit, uh, something related to household credit? No. No. Okay. Uh, is this a stat that came out this week? Yes. Okay. Uh, is it an economic financial reason? stability related? Financial? No. no. Is it um, some part of the imports report? No. From the foreign trade? No. Okay. Um, Not related to foreign trade. Uh, is it a stat, a stat that we follow, a, a government statistic that we would typically follow, or is this mm-hmm. more esoteric? Mm-hmm. Oh, it is. Um, We're all in trouble. Came out this week. <laughs> Came yep. out this week. What came out this I'll week? I'll say, Bill, you're like tangentially Close. on the right track there. Minus zero trade related year over year. It's not. Uh, is it? Wouldn't be the tr- the trade deficit, would it? No. The okay. dollar, something related to no. the dollar. No trade weighted dollar. Hmm. Uh, are we going to be embarrassed if we don't get it? I don't think so. Okay. Okay, good. I mean, I'll try not to embarrass you. <laughs> Can you give us one more hint without giving it to us? Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't. I, I was so busy this week. I really haven't paid a lot of attention. The to reason you. I said it's happily coincidental is because of Bill and his nope. expertise. China, no, banking. China, what is it? banking. <laughs> Oh, uh, it wasn't year over year imports from the China. Um, no, she said no, it was it's, a it's a banking number. Is it? Oh, uh, was it? We did get the consumer credit report this week, and I was looking, but I was did looking we? at the month over month change. Um, it's not consumer credit. We did get consumer, consumer credit. credit. Okay, all right. Can I just? I think you? I think we're going to give. Yeah. Cool. Oh, by the way, this. Related to UI claims in any way? Did I didn't no. even look at UI claims? What happened to UI? Claims? They fell. They fell back down to what? They fell slightly. They went from like two twenty okay. to two eighteen right. or something. Just asking. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. We give. What is it? It's Chinese CPI year over oh, year in oh, January. Oh, yes. Of course. Damn. Of course. Oh. Yeah. We all knew that. 
sure we did. Yeah. <laughs> I picked it. I picked it not knowing that Bill was like a Chinese expert here, oh, but um, I just thought it was interesting because this is yeah. kind of the deepest deflation China's had since the financial crisis. I hope this my mom's not listening. Mostly, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe you are embarrassed, Bill. I don't know. <laughs> Um, this is mostly driven by food prices. So there is a glut of pork production in China and oh. pork prices are down like 18% over the year, 17% over the year. So overall food prices have been just plummeting in China. Energy prices are falling too, but overall, as we know, consumer demand is also really weak. So uh, consumer goods prices are falling Service prices are up, but they're really, really weak, and they they appear to be weakening uh, month over month. So, I you know I picked it because I thought it was interesting, and we've talked in the past about how weak Chinese demand may actually be helping mm. or have helped the U.S. economy to kind of keep inflation under control, right? As as sort of it's put a damper on overall global demand and demand for U.S. exported products. That's a good one. Hey, Bill, do you have any uh, perspective on what's behind the Chinese deflation and how big a deal that is for global inflation? I mean, the, for pork prices, um, China uh, grows pork domestically using like soy and other kind of feedstocks that are uh linked to the global commodity price, global agricultural commodity prices. So I think we're we're seeing the finally seeing some pass through of the, the food price shock of 2022 coming out of, of, uh, of food prices there. Um, for China's economy more broadly, man, it doesn't look great. Uh, I, I was in China over the holidays and um, you know, you see the effects of the, the housing market downturn, but commercial real estate utilization all, all also looks quite weak. Um, like a lot of uh, barely occupied uh, retail space. Um, I was in Beijing, you see it there. Uh, and um, like I, I lived in China from 2004 to 2006 and then 2009 to 2011. And the, the change in demographics, just kind of looking around on the street, seeing how few children there are compared to how mm -hmm. there it used to be, it's very dramatic. Um, and so that kind of anecdotal... <laughs> the longer term thematic story about the constraints on China's growth kind of binding more tightly now, I think are, are, are very palpable. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I don't think we're likely to see a big turning point in the Chinese economy in the near term. Bummer. I, yeah, that was a good, really good statistic, Marissa. Very good one. Uh, Bill, you want to go next? Uh, sure. So um, first time playing, uh, my, my number is, uh, my number is 5.1%. So, um, how much details, how much detail do I give when so that, um, I'm, I'm playing fair. That's, that's a good number. And we'll start asking questions. Yeah. Is it, okay. Is it a we'll suss it out. You suss it out. Yeah. Uh, is it a government stat? Yes, it is. Uh, is this, did it come out this week? No. Oh, it's, it uh, it's an. It's an old, it's, it's, a, it's a government stat. It's one from a slow moving data source. Census Bureau? Uh, uh, not Census Bureau. It's not, a, it's a demographic variable? Um, I'm trying Housing? to think of where, where I would find it in data buffet. In data buffet, it may be under demographics. 
Oh, okay. 5.1%. So some actually, no, um, I, uh, I, uh, it's actually not in data buffet. Uh, oh. I was, oh, I was talking talk with the help desk earlier this week. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Let's oh, edit this no. part out. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, this is a nice way to force us to. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. Uh, it's it, demographic is related. Is it, is it a statistic from the past year? Uh, it is no longer a statistic covering the past year. No, two years. Yeah, it's um, okay. this is a this is a 2022 annual number, which is uh -huh. the most recent release. Five point one percent. It's and it's it's not housing related. It's demographic. So so um, uh, my my to lay out my thematic story for this. Yeah. Um, right. I'll give you uh, one that I I'm pretty sure you're gonna get. What was 3.6% for the last two years in a row? Not, not, not 22, 2021. It's from for 2022 and 2023, it was 3.6% annual average. Um, it wasn't inflation, was it? Uh, no. 3.6%. Uh, <laughs> the, the unemployment rate. The annual average oh, unemployment oh. rate. Yeah. Oh, 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 okay. was it 3.6? Okay. Yeah, 3.6 yeah, for both yeah, years yeah. on an yeah. annual average. So, um, so this number, it went from 3.8 in 2021 to 5.1% in 2022. Um, and uh, so, uh, is which, which is getting worse. Labor market related then? Labor market related? Not labor market no. related, actually. Oh, okay. but, a, but a broad measure of the health of the household and consumer sector. Oh, I see. I see. Um, savings. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I feel. Oh, like is it is it a is it a like debt service burden or a financial mm -hmm. obligation ratio? That sounds really high, though. No, it's so it's this low. this is uh oh yeah this is low. very low right. food insecurity in the United States. Uh, so uh, maybe I'm cheating by picking something too obscure, but no, um, that's okay. Fair enough. Like, so, so 5.1 percent of the population has food insecurity. So this is uh, 5.1 percent of the population had very low food in, food insecurity had very low food security in 2022, yeah, which right. is this is the USDA and their data comes out at a, a long lag. Um, and so, like to your question about are we going to have a recession? Did we have a recession? Like I feel like this is uh so it went from 3.8% in 2021 to 5.1% in 2022 which is the high and they only they measure it on like it's not measured the way the rest of our economic statistics are measured like they only give an annual average number and they are they're measuring like did you experience did you have so little access to food over the last year that someone in your household had to skip a meal was is essentially the that's like the simplistic version of their question yeah. Um, and uh, I've I've been like like I'm everybody. I've been thinking about the the kind of vibe vibe session debate and uh, mm -hmm. like how how what what happened to the economy really, and um, like you don't most measures of the economy you don't see a recession, uh, and you don't you definitely don't see a recession as the MBER defines it. But um, like that, uh, you know to. Um, like there's uh, Mark, I'm sure you like 
demote people who try to do this at work, but it's sort of like an uh, I don't unavoidable people. temptation of the economists to, to say, the, uh, well, the reason there wasn't a recession is because we're measuring it wrong. There really was a recession. It's just, it's not fair, the definition. But um, so I, I know it's like, that's not what you're supposed to do as, as an economist. But no, I like, hear you. I hear you. Yeah, let, me, let me push back a little bit. I mean, okay. couldn't that simply be the American Rescue Plan? I mean, the American Rescue Plan provided so much support in 2021, particularly around mm-hmm. food assistance, you know, SNAP, expanding out the SNAP program. That expired, I, 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 I think, in 2022. And so you would mm-hmm. see- you kind of see what you're describing and it, that, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, recession, I guess. Right. I mean, it's a, a tremendous support, less support, but it goes to the vibe session for sure. Yeah. Because people had support and then they don't, and that, 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 that doesn't feel good. I, so I get that. I, so. I think the, I think the withdrawal of fiscal stimulus and support for households is a huge part of it, but I like the, the surgeon, in the price of food and gas and rent for low and moderate income households and and for middle income households that um, are are might be renters or or have someone who's a renter and it's um, I think like there was I think there was a lot more economic stress on the household sector in 2022 than we we have good data to measure um, and especially like. Uh, uh, retiree households where like, what does the unemployment rate matter if you're retired? Um, actually higher unemployment means probably means there's more, uh, home health workers who are available. So your, your standard of living might get better. Um, if there's more slack in the labor market. Um, but, but you do, and I, I, I think you can get at it through these sort of what we consider or what I would consider kind of ancillary measures of this, the health of the economy that aren't really linked to output. Um, and they're not really linked to consumption, right? Because it's not, you're not measuring consumption uh, in, in dollar terms. It's not big dollar amounts, but it's important to kind of standards of living. So um, yeah, it's uh Good one. I, I, it's something I've been- We'd never uh, have gotten it, by the way. What, um, but Bill, Bill what, <laughs> yeah, what does that so statistic obscure. look like? Yeah relative to prior to the pandemic? Like, is that a low number, a high number, just historically it, speaking? Right. It, it jumped back to where it was in 2014. So it's measured annually. Um, yeah. We don't have, I don't know, uh, I, I guess the Census Pulse survey, there is high frequency yeah. data on, and which which uh, listeners are home, you can get Census Pulse and data buffet. Um, the, uh, That's the special survey the census began with the pandemic to provide a lot of granular understanding what was going on to people because of the pandemic, health and I think they do ask yeah. about food, food and security, yeah, they do. security they do. in that yeah, survey they do. too. They do. And, and it's, it, every, you get the data every two weeks. So that was the first time that we had data like that uh, on a high frequency. Um, but this, this indicator, the last time it was... Uh, it rose as much as it did in the 2022 data was in 20, it was, it was at that level or high level in 2014 when the unemployment rate was 6.2%. Mm-hmm. So if you want to think of like broad summary statistics of the economy going from where they were in 2021 and then going back to where they were in 2014, I feel like, like the unemployment rate, uh, I, I, um, it was, I think 5.6% annual average in 2021 some in, somewhere in the fives for most of the oh, year. If it went to six point two percent, like that would have been a mild recession. So, um, 
again, the Weasley economist who yeah. was wrong argument. I mean, for, I love the statistic. Yeah. I think you're stretching, but okay. I am uh, really stretching. Yeah. No, that's totally fair. <laughs> hey, hey, Chris, uh, what's your stat? 53.4. Is that the ISM non-manufacturing index? Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> he, he wanted he wanted to give us one that would because we were we were miserable on the first two. Uh, <laughs> uh, go ahead. Yep. You want to explain, Chris? Well done, Marissa. This is a little bit of uh, good news, right? Good this news. is a uh, this is the services PMI, right? Uh, Fifty three point four indicates expansion. It's the thirteenth consecutive month of expansion of the uh, services purchase managers index. So that's you know above fifty is it is consistent with expansion. So that's certainly uh, quite positive. Um, if you look through some of the components, there's still very bright signs in terms of business activity. New orders are up, right? They're the purchase managers are indicating that you know demand re remains strong. The one blemish you might uh, point to, I think this might be related to some of our earlier discussion, is uh, prices paid. Uh, the uh, the uh, purchase managers are indicating that you know they are facing higher uh, pressure mm -hmm. for prices again. Part of that related to transportation and transportation, yeah. uh, the shipping costs that alluded yeah. to earlier. So that's certainly something to watch if that were to continue. And manifest into broader inflation, that certainly would be a negative. But overall, right, this is a very positive report. Yeah, very so, good. Chris, um, like surveys of sentiment have been so weird the last couple of years. Um, yep. Are you starting to put more weight on them now, or are you still like, man, been such a bad leading indicator of what's really going on? And it's a huge grain of salt still. Well, I think it varies a bit. I, I I don't put a whole lot of stock in surveys to begin with, right? Because of uh, you know just the subjectivity and interpretation of the question, and whatnot. I will say though that I think the ISM, the Purchase Managers Index, is a bit of a combination between sentiment and actual hard data. So, put a little bit more stock into this one versus a consumer confidence, which you know is just a more of a gut feeling. <laughs> Um, and as we've talked about on the podcast, you see very strong relationships with political affiliation. So hard to really put a tremendous amount of weight on that. But um, yeah, PMI, I think it's it's worth watching. Again, I, I don't think it's uh, necessarily tells you something that's very different from other hard data you might see in the economy. But I think it can give you a, a bit of a, a, a useful signal in terms of sentiment. So. I, I think yeah, it's that, worth uh, keeping that an eye. ISM services index that that's had some really weird months, hasn't it? Like, if, I I can recall last year there was one month when it plunged and then came right back and yeah, a lot exactly. of weird I, stuff. Yeah, I don't know that you want to. Yeah, hang your. I, I certainly wouldn't look at one month and conclude you know uh, yeah, very you much. Say but... that about a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. true. <laughs> that's right. True. But... Hey, I I got a stat. You'll never get it. But it's a good segue. Right. <laughs> I'll give you a lot of help, but you'll never get it. It's, this is a good segue into the part of the, the last part of the conversation around China. Therefore, mm -hmm. that was a big hint. Okay. $1.77 trillion. And you may get it because it was in the headlines this morning. I saw it in the headlines this morning in the financial news related to the oh. stock market. Another, another big hint. $1.77 trillion. And I'm not going to labor it for too long before I it's a know. financial it's a financial related number it is indeed yes it is 
Well, if, uh, if I'm not going to get it, I remember the fiscal deficit was 1.7 and uh, change. Can't, can't be that, can it? No, but that was no, good. No, no. I think another stat that matches that number, do yeah, I get that, like... That happens, that happens. Okay. Right, I'm going to put you out of your misery. Is it, that oh. is the market capitalization of NVIDIA. NVIDIA. The, you know, the, the uh, AI chip uh, company whose stock has gone skyward, part of the Magnificent Seven, the seven companies whose stock prices have gone north. So NVIDIA is up again today. 1.77 trillion. And this is why I bring it up. NVIDIA's market cap is now larger than the market cap of all Chinese equity. So you had up all the market cap of Chinese stocks because wow. China's stock market's been pummeled here. Uh, and NVIDIA is, is higher than that, which is a comment on Chinese stock, but it's also probably a comment on our own stock market. You know, what's going on with regard to, because I do worry a bit about uh it feels really hyped here. These are great companies, you know, that are the Magnificent Seven, Microsoft and Meta, and you know, uh, they're all good companies. But nonetheless, uh, this yeah. Is what's a, the P to E ratio on that? On on uh, Nvidia. Let me see if I can tell you. I can't tell you very. I'll tell you here very quickly. I hope the P E is ninety four. Ninety four. Okay. Just for context, listener, the you know, historically, P's or should be around 50, the S&P 500 is 15, 16, 17, something like that. So 94, uh, which brings us back to China. And this is where I want to end the conversation, because, Bill, you spent a lot of time in China and your early part in your career, you were focused on what was going on with China. And you already uh, kind of mentioned this. It feels like you're uh, uh, kind of pessimistic about Chinese prospects here. Is that is that fair to say? Um. So um, there's, I think you need to sort of answer, I, I, I hear two questions in, in your question. One is like, China's stock market so cheap right now, you know, is all, is there too much pessimism priced in? And um, I think like, I'm, I'm, I'm not an equity strategist, so I'm not, I don't have a specific view on that. I feel like part of what's priced into Chinese equities is a combination of like the economy's not doing great. But then also, uh, if you're a U.S. investor, are you going to be forced to divest or your shares go to zero because there's sanctions on China if there's, if, um, you know, a conflict between China and the United States? So I, um, I think for the Chinese economy, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pessimistic about, well, it's funny. I, I see a lot of things that are going wrong in the near term. And um, my experience being uh, like a, a China forecaster and also someone who's who studied Chinese economic history is that China often gets to these points where things are very obviously going wrong. And if you read like a layer or two into the media coverage, like a lot of the media coverage in the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg, um, like they're great, great journalists, um, but they like, they'll often notice things first because they'll see a report in the new China news service run by the communist party that, wow, there's this issue that the communist party and the government are paying more attention to now. We got to come up with something to fix this. So um, the, the Chinese state, like on a, I guess, 40, 45 year time horizon did a good job 
or good is a, a value judgment, did an effective job at identifying problems and coming up with uh, changes to their system to work through those problems and, and to, um, to manage those problems down. Um, they haven't done that as well in the last couple of years though. And I think that the, a lot of the kind of more meta pessimism about China, um, both here and, and in China is just that like concern that that uh, more pragmatic approach to like, you have a problem today with X, Y, and Z, let's change the regulations for this one sector so that we can work around it. They're not, willing to make those pra pragmatic changes. And then also that they're, um, they're, uh, they don't have the same like positive demographics and long-term trends with urbanization and uh, the growth of the labor force and so forth. It's just really harder, much, much harder to grow out of problems than it used to be in China. So um, yeah, I'm, I, I am, uh, you know, worried about the longer term for China's economy. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully they uh, surprise us again in the West by coming up with some clever adaptation of their system that gets them through these problems, but don't, don't see a lot of evidence of it right now. I kind of said another statistic, $450 billion. Now, what is, what is this? That's related to data that came out this week and related to China, $450 billion. Oh, that's not the... rounding. Is that a trade statistic? Yeah, trade statistic. Is it our? It's U.S. imports low. from China. Oh, oh, okay. In calendar year 2023. I'm rounding. Okay. And uh, but Mexico uh, imports from Mexico to the U.S. now are were higher than Chinese uh, imports uh, or exports into the U.S. or U.S. imports of Chinese goods. For the first time in 20 years, for the first time in 20 years. So that gives you a sense of how dynamics are shifting. And in terms of the pessimism around China's prospects, you didn't mention, or maybe you did and I missed it, the U.S.-Chinese relationship. That feels like that's definitely going in the direction that's not going to be very helpful for either economy. It diminishes both, I suppose, but particularly hard on the Chinese economy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's hard to see that improving given dynamics on, on both sides of the Pacific. Uh, uh, Mexico, as you point out, a big beneficiary of that, like the US, uh, US trade deficit has you know, continued to go up since the pandemic in broad strokes. So it's not like we have a smaller trade deficit than, than we have. And, and like, as, as, as all of you know, like the, there's, the trade deficit tends to track with the fiscal deficit over time. Um, and, uh, but the, uh, where we are running that bilateral trade deficit with has really shifted. Um, and, uh, I, I think the, um, and where we're buying from, like, I, I talked to a lot of management teams at companies, uh, talked to a lot of clients and I, I think some of it is geopolitical. A lot of it is just after the supply chain problems in the last couple of years and port of long beach companies wanted to diversify. And um, uh, Mexico and getting getting goods across U.S. borders over land rather than through a port has been attractive. So I think that's a, a big part of that story. Well, very good. Uh, well, I, I uh, in, uh, guys, anything else you want to ask Bill while we have him? Uh, 
Anything, any burning issues? Uh, Super Bowl pick. Super Bowl pick. Ah. Yeah, this, uh, this, this is going to be very telling, you know, what he says here. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. I um, I, I, I think we'll win it. <laughs> I don't, <laughs> I wish you don't I follow football? You. Really? You're not a football oh, man. That's I'm, interesting. I'm, I gotta, I've, I've been, it's been 24-7 trying to get these stats the last week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I get I, it. And I got them all wrong anyway. Yeah, no, I don't yeah. have anything for you. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. Marissa, do you have a pick? No, well, I really it? don't. I really don't care. <laughs> You know, okay. I've noticed about that, either of these teams. a lot, you know, given this whole uh, uh Taylor Swift Kelsey um, thing, yeah, a lot more women that. are like uh, engaged. Uh, no, you haven't noticed that, okay? I mean, not this woman, not this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really uh, sick of hearing about Taylor Swift, and yeah, I'm, uh, I'm sick of it. I'm not going there. I'm not going there. <laughs> I know I'm probably gonna get hate mail for saying yeah. that. Chris, I'm curious who who would you who you are you oh you know you play bocce Chris ball he plays bocce ball he doesn't play he doesn't <laughs> football here we go again <laughs> uh, I think I think she's gonna make the game that's my uh, pick what do you I'm mean Taylor. Taylor it's all about Taylor right oh it's all about she's Taylor, gonna but... make it she's gonna make it she'll be she's there for gonna make the game yeah the flight back yeah flight been, back been from uh, Japan. Oh, oh, I haven't been following. Boy, now he really- Well, you know where she is on. in the world. Wow. <laughs> He's stalking her. Whoa. He's a Swifty, I told you. He's a Swifty. He's a crypto- it, Billy, this guy is a really interesting guy. This is why you could never be chief economist in Moody's. You got to be weird like, you know, Chris. You got to be crypto king, bocce ball player, sip <laughs> wine in cellars in Italy somewhere every summer. We, we don't know where he goes in the summer. He calls us from some wine cellar somewhere. <laughs> do we and do we get to hear Chris's do we get to hear Chris's good news before the podcast ends? Oh yeah. What were you gonna tell Chris? Oh no, 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 no. That that's personal. That's oh personal. Mark, Mark. <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that. I just can't do it. It's good news okay. though. It's good news. Okay. It's good news. All right. You, okay. We How will... about when will the Fed release C car? Oh, geez, Louise. Yeah, Bill. Yes, you know not today. Excuse me? The C-car, the C-car stress scenario. We're, we're all waiting with bated breath for that thing. But not Bill. Uh, we are, we are, yeah, we're not, we're under $100 billion. Yeah. So I I watch with great interest, but uh, the stakes <laughs> are are different when you're at uh, at uh, a bank under $100, $100 billion in assets. Yep. They're very good. Yeah, so, uh, but good, good luck with all of that. I was looking at your production <laughs> schedule. It is a very tight production schedule for, uh, for Moody's. Uh, yeah, we're very tight. We, you know, we take great pride in that. Actually, so thanks for calling out, and thanks, thanks so much, Bill, for uh, coming on and being a uh, so gracious uh, with your time and your insight. Uh, we really appreciate it. And um, um, with that, uh, I think I'm going to call this a podcast. So take care, everyone. Talk to you next week. <laughs>